House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. All right, welcome back into the House of Mystery, and we're at the interview part of the uh, the show. And uh, today we are going a little bit different. We normally stick to nonfiction or cults or mysteries of, of something that happened and um, we're, we've been touching off on um, uh, some fiction lately and um, some there's some really really good writers that do uh, some incredible stories uh, now I've been listening to this book for a while too and it's just uh, it's, it's, it's an incredible book I, I, I love the uh, the way Thank it's you. done um, and the book I'm talking about so people know it's dodging and burning and the writer um, is with us uh, via phone today, John Copenhaver. Um, I'm, I'm glad you can make it. Thank you guys so much for having me. Now, uh, John, um, where did your writing come from? Like, what, what made you get into doing um, these types of, of stories and uh, crime stories? And, and where does that come from? Um, well, you know, I originally kind of started off uh, my writing life uh, really when I was much younger, although I wasn't writing. I was making a lot of home movies where I would get my friends together and tell murder mystery stories. Like I would force, I'd write, I'd write a script for them and pull out like my mom's old camcorder. I get pretty old by today's standards. <laughs> and, you know, we would, you know, I was just as a kid, I was completely inspired, you know, inspired and read lots of Agatha Christie, of course, and Sherlock Holmes and, um, and you know, all, all that stuff that you'll probably find in a lot of mystery writers past, you know, but uh, I didn't really start thinking about myself as a writer first. I really started thinking about myself as a storyteller. And then, like, so I would wrangle all my friends, I uh, think much to their chagrin although they were good sports, and I would sort of tell these, these wacky stories, which are pretty hilarious, um, especially since I, I grew up in southwestern Virginia, so I have a real sort of uh, mountain twang originally to my, my voice. These little videos are pretty hilarious. But, you know, the I, just, I think I'd always wanted to tell stories, and I, eventually through high school and, and through college, uh, my interests sort of moved away from mystery more to, you know, literary fiction, um, mainly not because I wasn't interested in, in writing mystery fiction, but it felt like the world was telling me I needed to write literary fiction and whatever that means. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily think there's a, there's a dividing line between the two, but you know, sometimes the, the, uh, the publishing world does. But anyway, um, I got my MFA at George Mason and um, after I got the MFA, I said, you know what? I really love, I really love mysteries and I want to tell one. <laughs> And um, I think that in a lot of ways what I was doing, even when I was writing sort of short stories and stuff in my MFA, even my MFA thesis, sort of, you know, really, you know, the the narrative is sort of a mystery narrative. So um, I think it's really kind of where I, where I come from. I think I've always been wanting to tell mystery stories to tell the truth. So where do you, where do you draw your influence from? Like when I, I write, some books too, and uh, even Mike's writing a book now. But we're, we're in the nonfiction, so we go out and right. meet, meet people and get the story and see the cops and do it. Like we're getting the actual, you know, from what happened. So we're not doing, 
like what you do, and that really fascinates right. me because it's really it's entertaining, and it's done well. And and so, where do you draw your influence, like for your characters? Um, well, uh, in a lot of ways, I mean, maybe this is true for every fiction writer. They're they're always sort of pieces or fragments of yourself. Um, and uh, I think there's always a question that you're having about yourself or your background that you're asking with each character. Um, it's not like the whole the whole person, but these little parts. And so I think every character, at least every developed character, I should say, that I have is in, in some way is a, a piece of myself, um, you know, that maybe I see reflected in the world around me or I, I kind of want to explore in some way. You know, with Dodging and Burning, I was definitely thinking about my mother, who was Ciola, the, the younger of the two narrators' age, right at the time uh, that these events would have occurred. So she was exactly Ciola's age in 1945, 46, that time period. And so, um, you know, I just had questions about her upbringing, what the world was like, um, you know, being a gay man and, and in that time period, of course, I, my question was, what would have that been like? Um, how difficult would have been? And so that clearly helped serve and form, uh, dodging and burning a lot of ways. Uh, but I think generally speaking, I'm always, you know, I mean, I guess it's really, you know, very self-centered activity. (laughs) You are always kind of writing about yourself. Um, you know, I really like to sort of put, you know, I love to uh, bolster the the fiction with, with a lot of research. So I certainly appreciate um, research a great deal and, and really look for it in the things that I read. Um, so, you know, that impulse is there, but it's a little different because you are inventing the story instead of reporting on the story that's finding a way to sort of tell a story that's happened. So I guess that's a little different, but... Yeah, Um, yeah, I think that's kind of where I come from. Well, I agree. I mean, when when I'm putting together even a nonfiction, I still still want to find what's going on, especially an older crime or something, and and get the atmosphere of uh, the community in the book. So I I think it adds texture, and, and a lot of people reading it might not have been around, or they don't know what was going on, you know, even as, just as close as the 60s and 70s, you know, it's, it's time's flying, so, you know. Um, Absolutely. So, so, so that's important. But, I, you know, I just, it's fascinating to me how you can develop the character through the story. Like, how do you, how do you come up with what, um, what they're feeling and, 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 and how they are as a character, like how they, how they say things, how they word things, how they phrase it, how they talk about uh, different subjects. How, like I, I just, I find that fascinating of how well you can get this person in your story. Um, you know, so you, you get to know so much about them, and, and where does that is that just your imagination? Uh, well, I mean, I guess essentially it is, um, but I guess there's kind of a process to it. I mean, and I, I think this is, you know, tr- it's going to be very different for d- different writers. Um, I tend to kind of have um, a sense of a character's, almost more of a surface sense of them, whether it's sort of a mannerism that they have or a look that they have. Um, and then I think... I started exploring, and, and um, you know, the novel that I've just finished 
that I've been working on now and true for dodging and burning as well. So I got about 80 pages in and I had to go back and do a lot of um, revising to to really figure out who they were. So I kind of I kind of start with a situation and an idea of who I think they are and mood even. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I sort of, I sort of continue to revise and, and excavate the character. Um, and, and it's a journey. I mean, that's why I like, you know, you know, really the first draft is just the beginning because you, you really do have to excavate and figure, figure out what, what they're about, what's motivating them. And, um, you know, because that's, in fact, I think that's the most interesting part of, of the storytelling. And you, and you do discover stuff about yourself in doing that. At least I do. Yeah, of course. You know, because you learn, mm-hmm. I guess you would learn how you feel about different things. And, and Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and what you end up empathizing with, <laughs> which yeah. could be interesting. Yeah, and, and even your own reactions to um, events or different things, um, sometimes mm-hmm. it's surprising, right? And um, yeah. I could imagine. Um, so let's give, like, I've been listening. I, I should say that as well. In the audiobook, it's great. You have the different people reading different characters. Mm-hmm. And I, I yeah. find that's really fascinating because I've never had that done with my book. So I think that adds a lot of texture. That's uh, um, It's almost like listening to the old radio shows. Yeah, it was really a fun, and that was a fun thing, the doing the audiobook because, I mean, I love audiobooks. I love, you know, uh, you know, I commute to work. I'm always listening to them. I'm listening to you know radio shows, podcasts, everything. So voices are just really important to me. I was like, well, you know, I really hope that I get to participate in choosing these voices, and they they did, and I had some wonderful actresses doing doing the voices of the two main characters, and of course, um, the day of death part is another actor. So, you know, I think that there's just it creates a sort of texture to it that is really fun to. Uh, I, I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, no, I I was surprised, and but I was very happy with it. I think it's great. Um, so maybe give a rundown for the listeners. I know it, but uh, give give a rundown basically of the plot in the story. Yeah, so um, dodging and burning is really about uh, this uh, central character of of the story is this wartime photographer named Jay Greenwood and um, he is wounded in battle and he comes home and the story really begins in the home front um, and he agrees to meet this young woman to take a picture of her um, for a modeling opportunity that she wants to take advantage of and when he goes to meet her he finds that she's been murdered that she's been beaten to death and he has his camera with him and He's trained to sort of dissociate himself from violence and, and, and the sort of mitigating sort of influence is the camera. So he picks up the camera and snaps pictures of it, like um, to, in, in a sense, record it. Um, and then the, the two narrators of the story uh, play huge roles. They are Bunny Prescott, who is this uh, debutante, who sort of socialite debutante, who um, is in love with Jay unrequitedly, though, because Jay's gay. And then um, this, the kid sister of Jay's lover, um, who's Seal, as I mentioned before, and um, he shows this picture, the pictures of the corpse to these girls or tells them about the event, shows the pictures. Um, of course, when they return to the crime scene, the body is gone, and there's a lot of uh, very little evidence of the crime occurring. So they're stuck with this sort of powerful image, which actually is in the book, 
Um, and, and then have to unravel the mystery around like, uh, around this image. And a lot of questions are emerging about whether, you know, Jay's telling the truth about it altogether. And so that drives the mystery. And it ends up being a lot about Jay's wartime experience, um, you know, his sort of trauma from the war and, um, and then sort of the, the role that photography kind of plays in, in recording. Um, you know, the war, which I'm also pretty fascinated with. So, um, but yeah, the mystery centers around this murdered woman and kind of who did it. Um, in a lot of ways, it does still function very much like a mystery story. Hmm. Wow. And, and so what do you do for a living? You're a teacher, you said. Yeah, so I, I teach high school at an independent day school um, outside of D.C. called Flint Hill, and it's, uh, I also run the English department there. So, um, you know, during my school year, I've, I, you know, I'm balancing that with trying to get some writing done, which is, can, can be interesting. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, you know, of course, I enjoy, I enjoy it being a great deal. Um, you know, but I think that, uh, it is hard to balance the two. I'm actually taking, uh, a year off next year just to focus on my writing because I'm pretty excited about that. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I was going to do some research. I'm not sure what the sort of coronavirus is going to, what what sort of that's going to wrench is going to throw in the works, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, things like that get in the way, right? But you just don't know what to expect. Yeah, right. I mean, I, it did no. for me. I mean, I was in the middle or three quarters of a way, and I was just going to fly to a city and and uh, finish up some more work. But uh, you know, things happened. <laughs> well, it must be it must be difficult. It must be difficult when you're doing true crime reporting to because you. I mean, you're you're you really, I guess, need to have a connection with people that I'm sure this is making difficult to achieve, you know. Well, yeah, so, it's, 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 uh, really, it's really important because, um, you know, the better books end up having more connections with more people involved in, in the case, right? The more yeah, you have, the more. Yeah. You know, it turns out better. There's more information. It's better rounded. And, sure. Uh, and all that. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I could probably finish it up, but... Um, uh, you know, I'll wait as long as this isn't too long. You know, it depends how long we right. get, <laughs> get stuck. Um, where I am in the Western Canada, where both of us are actually, um, um, things have seemed to flatten out um, already, and we're, it, it, things are just sitting. But um, we'll see. We'll see yeah. where it goes. I think things are a little better in this area than back east there, and 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 the U.S. We don't know where where's going. What's going to happen there? Right, right, yeah. It's very interesting to have, live in one, a hot spot in the real cold spot in West Virginia, although I'm not convinced that there's more out here than it's being recorded just because there's not enough tests. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting sort of living in these two, there's two different mentalities if we go back to town for some reason versus out here. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange, strange. I, I guess now it. I don't know about you, but does it put kind of a dark cloud over things? Like when something like this happens, or um, mm -hmm. so the coronavirus is going on, and, and all of the uh, misinformation and conspiracies and fights going on, and you turn on the news yeah. and it's pretty dark overall. Um, does that does that change how you write? Are you, are you, does it make it kind of a darker perception and a darker way of writing when you write these books then? Um, that's really interesting. I mean, I was, uh, finishing up the revisions on my, uh, second 
uh, book during like when it was all kind of like coming, you know, uh, you know, the, the initial sort of burst of it in the East and everything. Um, and suddenly school was having to you know close and that kind of thing. Um, and I mean, I felt if anything, it became hard to write. Um, I just, it became hard to focus. Um, and I think, you know, there's at some point on Twitter or, you know, one of the social medias, um, Someone said, you know, now people can, you know, something about Shakespeare writing. I can't remember which of his plays, and you know, when the the Black Plague was happening or something, and people were kind of like grumbling about that because it's true. I mean, it was very, very at the very beginning, it was hard to focus because um, you feel like a big story is happening to you. It's hard to then think about this other story that seems so much smaller in comparison, especially you know, the piece of fiction. You're like, okay. And then, like, and then you settle down and realize that, you know, um, in fact, I've, I've gained some time. I'm not commuting and all this. And so, uh, um, and we, my husband and I, we do not have children. So we're not dealing with sort of a, a you know, a family, like much, much sort of, um, uh, you know, organizing of a family situation at home. So there's a lot of space and time to write. And so, um, I went from not being able to do much to then suddenly a surge of, of being able to do a lot, and now I think it's kind of evened out. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of people are struggling, though, uh, based on a lot of my writer friends. I don't think it's an easy an easy time, uh, but maybe eventually we'll find some sort of equilibrium. Hmm. I'm not sure. It, it, it shut me down completely as, uh, so yeah. far. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Um, I, I think well, my, it's, yeah. Larger, but uh, not me. I've been uh, kind of. But you know, the thing is, I I'm not really good at writing at home either. Yeah. So, so I don't know how yeah. if that is your case. Um, I do b- better yeah. writing outside of home. Oh yeah, I guess that would be difficult. No, home is my writing space. I kind of lock my way myself away in a, in a room and. Um, uh, I, uh, although I don't mind writing out like at, at coffee shops or the library or something, um, that is typically for whatever reason, I end up just writing at home, um, which is, you know, uh, interesting because I think that's hard for even folks who do normally write at home, especially if their families are there. I know some of my friends haven't been able to write at all because they're home with their, all their children and everything. And that's, you know, it's just not possible. Oh, um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, not me. I just—it's just—I'd rather be somewhere else and kind of lost in a crowd. So I'd rather be in a city with a couple mm-hmm. million people and that I don't know, and that isolation yeah. in that way helps me write. So you know, I guess it's all different for different people. I've been writing Indeed. from for two years, and all of a sudden, there's all these people in my space. It's like, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, uh, I just want to yell, get off my lawn. Yeah. <laughs> do it, do it, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's really a strange process, uh, hard, hard to explain at times, but um, yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so, uh, how is, so what do you think is going on now? We talk about a little bit about, things happening now current affairs how do you feel mm-hmm. about things right now uh i mean i think that um you know i think even at the beginning of this i was telling myself this is not going to be as ho- horrific as the worst case scenario or as good as, and fast as people want it to be i mean in general i just think we got to be patient um 
and smart. And um, my real takeaway from it, though, is um, instead of getting angry that you, you whatever, uh, I mean, the economy, you know, is a mess and everything, and it's just something we're going to have to live through. It's, it is like a big natural disaster. And you, you can't, as angry as you get at the situation, there's really nothing to do with it. You can't do anything. So in some ways, I think, I, I per, personally, I think folks need to start taking account of what maybe this experience is teaching them um, about little things. I don't know, whether it's like being out in nature more, or, you know, or moments that suddenly you're spending more time with your family members. I, even, it's interesting because, you know, I, I'm still doing online instruction with high school students, but their lives, they seem more like happy and stable <laughs> you know now because they're not under all this sort of because remember this is like northern virginia a lot of these a lot of these kids are under a great deal of pressure to get the colleges of their dreams i.e their parents dreams and you know and now like a lot of us sort of running around and the nuts the craziness is it's not there anymore and they're home and they're stable with their families and they're like they're actually writing better and they're thinking more clearly um so it's kind of interesting. Like, I guess what my point is that, um, you know, settle in, social distance, be safe, um, but ultimately, like, also see what you can learn um, under those constraints, you know, like, and so, um, you know, maybe being bored a little bit is not a terrible thing, but, um, or, ha- you know, spending a little more time in nature or, or figuring out, deepening your relationships with your family members, whatever. Um I guess, you know, I'm not, I don't want to put like, you know, I don't want to say that we shouldn't be concerned. We shouldn't, um, you know, be in touch and, and connected with what's going on. But at the same time, I think there's, we often, we always have to be looking at what, what's this teaching us, which in a lot of ways is like, you know, when you're even, you're looking historically, and because I write historical fiction, I'm always thinking about what do we lo- learn now looking back and now that we're in the midst of something pretty momentous. Um, this, certainly there would be a big, um, you know, mark on the timeline, the coronavirus mark on the timeline, like the before and after. And like, well, what is after? What are we going to take? What's the takeaway from this thing? You know, <laughs> I, I, I just wonder uh-huh. about how, how much do we really learn? Um, you, you know, we've probably got 30 percent of the U.S. population believing in a lot of weird history or, or, or conspiracies and false yeah. stuff going on and all this stuff's flying around and and look at how sure. many people are starting to pick it now protest you know social yeah. distancing and all this stuff and and all the things people are saying and that sort of happened in the in the um, Spanish flu right the uh, yeah and a lot of people died because of it so I, I just wonder how much we really learn from these experiences and maybe maybe some of us but I just wonder as, as a as a nation yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm holding you is, responsible. Yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, I speak of like the first thing that my husband and I started doing is like, let's look for podcasts on the Spanish flu and find out what happened then, because we we knew about it vaguely, and but I don't think it's something that we teach a lot, you know, in our history courses about it, like you know, it happened, it was devastating, and then things moved on rather quickly. Um, but now, you know, yeah, we do have, we can go back and learn about it. And um, I think 
that, I mean, there's always going to be a, a portion of our population, which is, you know, um, you know, ignorant for a variety of different reasons. Um, and some of it's willful. Some of it is because they don't have the resources. Um, you know, some of it's because no matter what you say on the news, they don't believe it because they believe it's all fake. You know, yeah. some of the, some of the news isn't, you know, very accurate. So it's just, you know, it's people kind of wander around not knowing what to believe. And I, I, I wish that, you know, ultimately people would use their reasoning skills a little more and just think through things instead of the sort of gut emotional, like, you know, hunch. They actually laid out the facts in front of them and thought through it. But people, um, especially these days, are ride on their emotions so heavily. Um, and uh, I think that sort of set up, set us up for some of the stuff. Um, but, you know, uh, <laughs> I think nature itself and the coronavirus was going to teach us, you know, regard, whether you believe it or not, it's coming. You know? <laughs> so, fake, I mean, fake news, um, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> We've been giving out fake news here for quite a while, actually. We... We enjoy doing okay. that. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. Uh, I have to say, what what is um? Do any other writers influence you, or do does music, or what kind of art influences yeah. you? What what what's absolutely? Your um, all sorts of things. Um, some of my favorite writers, uh, I think you know Margaret Atwood has to be very high on my list. In fact, there's a lot of I don't know if you know the the novel. Um, the Blind Assassin, but um, I love that novel, and it has sort of this layering going on in it. Um, it's it's much more, um, you know, I think a, a more difficult book than than Dodging and Burning, but it is essentially a mystery. And um, I just I love sort of her, uh, particularly her historical books. Um, and uh, Patricia Highsmith, I, I love. Um, uh, although she was apparently a not very nice person. Um, <laughs> but I think that she's great at creating unease and dread and tension. Um, and I think that's, uh, it's so, re- it's so readable. Um, in terms of, you know, I also love, uh, film noir. Um, you probably could pick up on a lot of that in, in, in the book, um, the mood of film noir. I, I love film in general and I actually teach a film course. Um, and I think that really plays a big role as well as photography. Um, Ouija, you know, speaking of true crime, you know, the photographer, his real name's Arthur Felix, but he went by Ouija. Do you know the story? Um, nope. yeah, so we, yeah, so Ouija, yeah, you gotta look Ouija up because if you're true crime, uh, you're true crime, true crime writers, you'll like this guy. He, in the 1940s, he had a police scanner, and he would listen in, and he would drive. Uh, he would listen to the police scanner, and when he heard a crime occurred, he would drive to the location of the crime, and often be the first person on the scene, and he would take pictures. And so, and it, but he was also very capable. Uh, his pictures were gorgeous, and and um, and dark and bizarre, disturbing. And, but they are, you know, essentially journalistic. Um, and he was also making a lot of social commentary too in his photography, but it has this real gritty noir feel to the images. Um, and they called him Ouija because he seemed to, he, he seemed to sort of appear on the scene of the crime before even the police knew about it. So it was like he, you know, there was sort of a nod towards his sort of 
his, he didn't have psychic abilities, had a police scanner. But, you know, that sort of spookiness <laughs> about him. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, he, yeah, but his images, I mean, he's a great photographer. Now, how he, I mean, people might feel different feel different ways about his images because they are, in some senses, you know, fairly, you know, explicit and exploitative. So, you, you know, but they're also really gorgeous and fascinating. And I always love that kind of tension between something that is, so you feel it's problematic, but you're still kind of drawn towards it all the same. Uh, it moths to the flame a little bit. And so um, I love stuff like that. Hmm. Um, no, I'm, he, I was just going to say, uh, what, what were you planning? You said you just finished a book as well. So what you've got another one coming out soon. Uh, yeah, well, hopefully. Um, <laughs> I yeah, it's it's also set in 1948, um, and this one is I would rather not also, but it's also set in the 1940s. It's set in 1948, and it's about two teenage girls um, during that time period who get to know one another and um, kind of end up having a. a uh, a, a romance with each other, um, sort of a la the film um, Heavenly Creatures. Uh, which, I don't know if you know that film at all, but oh, which yeah. is also yeah. based, which is based on a true crime. And um, and uh, they end up uh, getting involved in a crime, both at solving one and uh, perhaps committing uh, a few on the, along the way. So um, but it's got a real noir uh, feel to it. And I like to think of it as the coming of age story of, of uh, two femme fatale. So, um, and it's a sort of sympathetic coming of age story <laughs> for a yeah. femme fatale. Now, now for listeners, uh, do you have a website or a place that you would want people to come find you and find your books? Absolutely. Uh, it's www.jcopenhaver.com. And also, if you just search my name, it pops up there pretty high on the list, I think. Fantastic. Well, you know, um, we will have that on our website as well and a link to your book so people awesome. can do one click when they're listening. Um, again, this has been fascinating, and, and I'm, I'm glad you took the time to talk to us today. Um, the book we're talking about is Dodging and Burning, and the guest has been the author, uh, John Copenhaver. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a delight. Thanks, John. That's great. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. <laughs> By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.